A day after Christmas on December 26th of 2004, a massive earthquake occurred deep in the depths of the Indian Ocean. This resulted in the most destructive tsunami that we have on record. We now remember this tsunami as the Boxing Day tsunami. The power of this earthquake equaled 23,000 atomic bombs all going off at the same time. Waves measuring up to 100 feet started to hit 14 different coastlines within 15 minutes of this earthquake. At the time, there were no early warning detection systems in place in the Indian Ocean. And many people were completely unaware of what was coming and the danger that would lay ahead. In the aftermath, over 5 million people were affected by this 1.7 million people were left homeless. And nearly 230,000 people lost their lives that day. I, I remember watching the news. Many of you remember this situation. Watching the news and just, you're heartbreaking for the tragedy. The world watched and we wondered, what could we do to help? It seems so unfair that something like this could happen to so many innocent lives. You know, we live in a world where we frequently hear of evil, of tragedy, and of suffering. Nearly every day in the news, we hear of a flood, we hear of an earthquake, we hear of a wildfire, we hear of a murder, we hear of a shooting, we hear of a a terrorist act. And we ask ourselves, why are the innocent affected this way? The question, if God is a good and loving God. Why does he allow evil and suffering? I think that's a fair question to ask. I've asked it. Have you? If God is a good and loving God, why does he allow evil and suffering? Does he not care? Is he not concerned? You know, I can understand if a bad guy gets what's coming to him. Right? But when an innocent person suffers tragedy and loss and evilness, when a Christ follower gets the, get, get, has a situation where they are involved in unexpected suffering, how, how can God be involved in that? When we are in pain and, and we see others in pain, we may ask this question in protest to God. Why, God, would you allow this to happen to me? Or why, God, would you allow this to happen to my friend? People shouldn't have to hurt like this, right? You see, the pain is what we really protest. Pain and suffering stink. Yet I believe that God allows tragedy and suffering to bring us closer to him. We've all heard the coach yell out, and I want you to finish it, all right? No pain no gain, right? We've all heard our coach say that. Or in the weight room, you're lifting weights and your weight room coach says, no pain, no gain. We've heard that before. One person defined pain as a soil where the deepest kind of faith in God grows. C.S. Lewis, as he wrote the book, The Problem of Pain, yes, he wrote a book on it, says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This morning we're going to continue our series 
in Judges chapter 20, page 207 in the, in the Bible in front of you, or you can just follow along in your electronic device. And we're going to tackle a really difficult chapter. Last week was difficult, and this week is difficult as well. As, well. as, we, as we go through chapter 20, which is the civil war of Israel. Last week, Roddy shared the difficult story of Judges chapter 19, and he challenged us to live accountable to God. You see, when I live my life without God, and I do what I want, when I want, however I want, I'm setting myself up to hurt myself and most likely hurt a lot of people that I know along the way. This was the, the way that Israel was choosing to live. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. God was really not part of the picture, and the morality in Israel slowly spiraled downward. We should be reminded of what Paul wrote and warned the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And chapter 19 ends with verse 30. And it basically says this was the worst, what happened in 19, this was the worst of anything that happened since the children of Israel came, in, came into, into the promised land from Egypt. Israel had scored a new low. And this sad story continues in chapter 20 as the pain and the suffering increase for this nation. So let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 20 together. Then all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together and as one and assembled before the Lord in Mitzpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel spoke, uh, took their places in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard the Israelites had gone to Mitzpah, but they decided not to come. So 11 tribes come, one tribe says, pass. The Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing has happened. And so the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, I cut her into pieces and sent out one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all of you Israelites, speak up and tell me what have you decided to do? All the men rose up together as one, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel and a hundred from a thousand and a thousand from ten thousand to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. You know, Israel comes together in the first 11 chapters. They come together and there's a bit of a moral awakening they realize how low their society has come. And the leaders and the people come together. The Levite tells his story. If you compare the, the, what happened in chapter 19 versus what happened in chapter 20, you'll see that not everything measures up. The Levite is not the most forthright storyteller. 
He tells the basic truth, but he omits the men sought to defile him, and then he gave his concubine over to the crowd to save his own life. He also implies that it was all the men of Gibeah who threatened him, not just a certain base few fellows. You can say that he embellished the story a bit to protect his reputation, and at the same time, he fanned the flames for retribution. So guys, I have a question for you this morning, all right? I want you to raise your hand if you've ever lost a fight. You ever lost a fight? Got a few brave souls raising their hands. A few brave souls. There was a lot more guys that raised their hand in the first service. Just need to let you know that. I am one in high school that uh, when you reach ages 16, 17, 18, you think that you are Mr. Strong Guy. You can take on anybody, right? And uh, I'm, I'm a guy. Uh, I'll tell you the story of what happened, what happened to me. Um, I was in gym class, and um, one of my friends was being picked on, and I didn't like it. I decided to go up and I gave the guy that was picking on my friend a good push. And I pushed him and I gave him a good enough push that he fell on the ground. And everybody laughed at him and made a real public you know, spectacle of him. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm a cool guy. You know, everybody, got, everybody thinks I'm a tough guy. What I wasn't planning for later that night at work was for him to show up at work and want to finish and settle the score. And so that night at work, I kept looking over my shoulder. I was working at a grocery store and he's still sitting out there being like, yep. Can't wait, can't wait. And I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? It was before the time of cell phones. It was before the time of calling and texting my buddies for help. <sighs> so I just walked out there knowing that he was there and he actually had a couple of his buddies. So that day, I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson that um, I shouldn't be going out and pushing people that were bigger than me, right? And so uh, he gave me a, a good shiner on the eye. Uh, he, uh, he actually was a skateboarder, and uh, that's why I don't like skateboarders to this day. He took his skateboard, and he hit me on the head with it. And he really, you know, it was, it was I lost the fight. But the next day was a different day. The next day, I came to work, and my principal said, why do you have a black eye? And this was the oppor- opportunity for me to embellish and give some retribution. And this was an opportunity for me to maybe exaggerate a little bit and fan the flames so that he could get in more trouble. And I did. I took that opportunity. And I embellished a little bit. And I, and I, and I, you know, he threatened my life. And he, you know, he did this. And they bought the police in him. They did a police report on him. And this guy, he never came to school again, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I was guilty of embellishing a story to, either, to just to, to cover my pride, but also to fan the flames of retribution. We probably have all done that at some point in our life, of embellish a story to cover ourselves and make ourselves look better and maybe look at, make somebody else look bad. But this is what the Levite was doing. He didn't give all the facts. And tragically, his story led to a, to a civil war in which 65,000 men lost their lives in a matter of three days. So it's interesting that Israel decided, they came together and they said, we must purge those responsible for the evil facts that took place, for the evil acts that took place. You know, in these first 11 verses, we don't see anyone asking God for direction or guidance. Instead, we see them casting lots, rolling dice of who's going to go first. So in verse 12, the tribes of Israel then sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? 
Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. Instead, from their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. So Israel confronts the tribe of Benjamin and tells them to turn over the Gibeans who were responsible for these acts. The tribe of Benjamin astonishingly says, no, these acts are okay. In fact, these acts are okay and we're going to actually defend them. How could the tribe of Benjamin say no to this moral decay? How could the tribe of Benjamin be so callous by evil that they would not only not turn these evil ones over to justice, but actually harbor them and prepare for battle against their own people? Again, we must remember that God was not guiding Israel at this time. All throughout Judges, we see that, and man did that which was right in his own eyes. Men were not living under the direction of God. They were calling the shots. They were in charge. And it led to absolute chaos. In verse 15, we see Israel come together. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. So if you do the numbers, if you do the numbers, you've got 400,000, 27,000, right? So if we take the biggest guy in this room and put him right here, those odds would be one big guy to 15. It doesn't matter if we put 15 junior hires. If they all rush you at the same time, you can't can't handle 15 at one time. 15 men to one man. And the battle begins in in Judges chapter 20, verse 18. The Israelites went to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjaminites? I don't see them saying, God, should we? But who of us should go first? The Lord replied, Judah, you shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves for the first day. The first battle, God allows 22,000 Israelites to die. No mention of any Benjaminite death. You have to ask yourself, God, what's going on? How is this fair? Why are the good guys losing? In verse 23, Israelites went up and they wept before the Lord until evening and they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjaminites, our fellow Israelites? And the Lord answered, go, go up against them. Israel went before the Lord and wept and inquired, what should we do, God? And verse 24, we see the second battle begin. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day, this time when the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. 
The second battle, God allows 18,000 Israelites to die. No mention of any Benjaminite death. And again, we must ask ourselves, God, what is going on? Where are you? How is this fair? Why are you putting us through this tragedy? We're trying to do right, and justice is not being served. We are suffering and losing our husbands, our fathers, our leaders. After the second battle, we see that Israel starts to change their attitude towards God. In verse 26, Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented birth offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before them as a priest. They asked, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not, Lord? And the Lord responded, Go, for tomorrow I will give you into their hands. After the second battle, we see a different attitude towards God. The whole army went to Bethel, and they were sitting weeping before the Lord, Scripture says they fast in repentance and present burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. They involve a priest. It's like they come to the place where they come to the Lord in brokenness saying, God, we're not sure why you're allowing this tragedy. 40,000 of our men you've taken. None of their men you've taken. But God, we're broken. What are we to do? And God says, go again for tomorrow I'll give them into your hands. So verses 29 through 35 finish this third battle. and says, Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. The first two times, Israel's idea of fighting was to go to Gibeah. And these men were good at close quarter fighting, close quarter fighting for Gibeah. And this time they said, let's draw them out. And so this is what we see. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and they took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamins came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before so that about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before, so saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're kicking their butts three days in a row. The Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw back away from the city to the roads. Let's, let's feign that we're running away. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its position, place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near their disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. God gives Israelites God gives the Israelites the victory. If you want to call it that. Over the course of 3 battles Israel has lost over 65,000 men. You know what started as a few base fellows and the death of one woman being tragically abused 
leads to a full-out civil war with 65,000 people dying. The rest of chapter 20 talks about how the Israelites then went into Gibeah, into Benjamin, and they struck down their towns and their cities. They killed all the other men, and they killed all their livestock as well. It was a, this is a tragic chapter. This may have been the lowest point Israel had ever been. And so I started off this morning, as, we shared, as I share, share and look at chapter 20, I started off this morning in saying, if God is good and loving, which he says he is, why does he allow such evil and suffering like we saw in chapters 19 and 20? We certainly saw it. These are some of the darkest chapters of the Bible. I believe that God allowed Israel to experience this suffering and this tragedy because they had turned away from him and were living in such moral decay, they were not willing to come together and do as he had asked them to do. He had instructed them to drive out the Canaanites and to live lives that are set apart for him. Israel didn't have the ability or the desire to do that, but they did have the desire to come together and fight each other. I believe there are times in Scripture that God steps back and lets people make a big tragic mess of their life. We can all probably think of a time in our life or the time of somebody very close to us in which that's happened. There are other times, though, that God allows suffering to those that have not brought it upon themselves. Did the concubine bring the events of chapter 19 on herself? Certainly not. You think of the example of Job in Scripture. Job being a righteous man before God and having to go through all the heartache and all the suffering of losing his family, his possessions, and his health all in a matter of hours. This is what I think we really struggle with. Not the bad guy getting what he deserves, but God allowing the innocent to go through pain and suffering. But what about the statement, God allows tragedy and suffering to bring us closer to him? What do I mean by this statement? How did God bring Israel closer to him through allowing 65,000 men to die? I don't know if I have the answer for that. You You may be sitting here thinking, God sits up in heaven and he can't wait to punish me for stepping out of line. He's not a good father, but he's a vindictive scorekeeper. I thought this for some time in my life, that I had to live, live in a way that pleased God out of fear of him making things right. And I realized that that was a lie from, God, from Satan. It was a lie that Satan had me living in fear of what God may do to me. You know, maybe you have a hard time accepting that a good and loving father could allow such suffering in this world to allow so much pain and tragedy to occur. So I think we need to realize first is this. God is not the creator of evil and suffering, but he does allow it. God is not the creator of evil and suffering, but he does allow it. The Bible begins with the story of creation where we see God is an all-powerful and all-good God. Everything God made in chapters 1 and 2, he says he made them very good. And his first words to mankind were full of blessing, generosity, and protection. 
From the beginning of the Bible, it's clear that God is an all-powerful and all-good God, and there's no suffering. The Bible also ends in Revelation chapter 21 with a glimpse of a new creation where, again, there is no suffering. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4 say, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The end of the Bible then also shows that God is an all-powerful, that God is all good, and in new creation there will be no more suffering. Why then, we wonder, is there suffering and tragedy now? What went wrong? And sadly, that answer is that even though God's creation began as a masterpiece, and it will end as restored and renewed even greater masterpiece, right now his masterpiece has been spoiled by what we call sin, right? Sin. And the result of the sin, and those results of the sin are seen and felt by all who are alive today. You see, the all-powerful God also gave us as humans a shared power of what we call free will, choice. Adam and Eve had it, the Israelites had it, and you and I have it, right? Adam and Eve chose to rebel and, and evil was created with a rebellious heart against God. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God had to respond because he is holy, because he can have no part of sin. He had to respond to sin with a three-part curse. And so we're going to look at it. We see first the war with Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will... Eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the man, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So first, God declares war on Satan. Second, there's war within the family. In verse 16, we read, To the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, labor, you will give your birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then we see, War on the world. In verses 17 through 19, because of sin and the effects of sin, then he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I command you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. You know, you see the sin, or the curse of sin, introduces extra suffering into the world, such as satanic oppression, demon possession, spiritual blindness, birth defects, disease, natural disasters. So we are caught, as humans, right now in 2018, we are caught in a space of time between Genesis 3 and whenever Revelation 22 happens, where we are dealing with the effects of sin. We have to walk through evil. We have to walk through suffering, tragedy, because of sin. 
You may ask, why does God allow this curse of sin to remain? The Bible assures us that God hates this curse and won't let it continue forever. Revelation 22 says that. But he's, he has subjected the world to the frustrations of sin. And this is what I love. And its effects with the hope that we may realize our need for God and his answer to sin. So he asks, what is God's answer to sin? God has provided a way through the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the way to God was living a life of faith in God as outlined in the law of the Old Testament. Over and over again, Israel and the men and the women listed in the Old Testament failed and fell short of God's standard. And as we read the stories of the Old Testament, we understand that man can't get to God by using his own good works. God provided a way by sending his son, Jesus Christ. This is the evidence that God truly loves and he is good. We call this the message of the gospel. What we sung about earlier this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Starting at Adam and Eve through now, every person that has lived this earth has fallen short of God's standard, which is perfection. We have all sinned. We have a sin nature which we wrestle with and we struggle with every single day. God also says in Romans chapter 6.23 that the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of that sin is both physical and spiritual eternal separation from God. And we see that those that don't take care of this matter, those that don't realize their need for God, they don't address the sin issue are destined to spend eternity in hell. This is what I love. One of, the best, one of the best verses in the Bible is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, But God demonstrated his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And one of my favorite and probably most popular verses in Scripture, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life so that he could be our sacrifice for sin. What Jesus did on the cross is God's part of a practical solution for evil and suffering. Our part is to repent of our sins, to believe we can't save ourselves, and to put our faith in what Jesus did for us. Accepting the gospel and inviting Christ into your life does not mean that God will remove any future suffering or tragedy, but it does mean that with a relationship with him and through the Holy Spirit in your life, you will be able to walk through this life with evil and suffering in a way that pleases him. He will give you the strength. He will give you the ability, as hard as this life is, to walk through it. Another point that I have for you and a thought is suffering on this earth may be God's purpose for you. When Christ's disciples asked whose sin lay behind the blind man being blind, was it his parents or was it him? Jesus then redirected the disciples from thinking about the cause of the man's disability or suffering to instead consider the purpose for it. 
Jesus said this happens so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. Another way Christ may have answered it is you're asking the wrong question. Who's responsible for it? Because sometimes our sin does get us in a mess, right? But sometimes God allows things that just seem completely unfair. Things that we don't deserve that we have to walk through. Christ says you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no cause and effect here. Instead, look to see what God can do through the suffering and how he wants to be glorified. You know, Maybe this is where you find yourself today. Walking through suffering and asking God, God, how can I possibly glorify you in this? You know, as a church, we've walked through this in the last year. With Johnny's accident, we have walked through this as a church of an event that God allowed that complete, seems completely unfair and tragic and difficult to walk through and he's asked us to take little steps of faith and walking with him and glorifying him. You know, God doesn't promise that he's not going to allow suffering. In fact, it might be his purpose for you. And my fourth point is our current suffering on earth is preparing us for eternal glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, is our time on earth here is short, and we, might, we should remember that. Look what this says. So we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We have a hope that whatever temporary suffering we have will be light and short compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven. And we can find comfort in that. As we're going to sing a song in a few minutes that I hope speaks to your heart as we find comfort in Jesus. But as I conclude, as we look at the tragedy of Judges chapter 20 and the civil war of God allowing this to happen, many of these men that that died and these families that were affected may have well been living for God. They've been, they may have been faithful. Some may have not. But God allowed this to happen and we too can be certain we will face pain and suffering because of sin. We live in a broken world. There is hope for you. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God cares for you and he loves you. And he's offered his son as the gift for you. If you've not come to the place in your life where you've accepted Jesus as the hope and as the answer for your sin, we would love to talk to you after this service about that. And lastly, as we walk through suffering and tragedy, walk into it with faith that God wants to draw you closer to him. Even in suffering and tragedy, we can give him glory.